Welcome to this episode of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Larry Ostola, and today I have the pleasure to speak to Ted Barris about his history of the Battle of the Atlantic. Ted Barris is an award-winning journalist, author, and broadcaster. His writing has regularly appeared in the national press, as well as a wide variety of magazines. He's also worked as a host or contributor for CBC Radio, PBS in the United States, and TV Ontario. Mr. Barris is the author of 20 best-selling non-fiction books, including a series on wartime Canada. His latest book, Battle of the Atlantic, Gauntlet to Victory, was published by HarperCollins in the fall of 2022. Ted, many thanks for being here with me today. Larry, a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So uh, I'm going to put you on the spot right off the bat. You're our witness to yesterday today. Tell our listeners exactly what happened to convoy SC7, which was bound from Sydney, Nova Scotia to Liverpool, England from October 16th to the 19th, 1940. Okay, let me give you a couple of contextual details. First of all, SC, the name of the convoy, um, People thought it was a reference to Sydney, Nova Scotia, but in fact, it was a reference to slow convoy. Convoys could only travel as quickly as the slowest ship. And in most cases, because these are old and cranky um, ships that have been around for a long time, they were very slow. So a a convoy at best might be able to reach seven, eight, nine knots, which means it's about maybe 10, 11, 12 miles per hour, which is very slow. Um, a slow convoy could consist of as many as 40 or 50 or 60 ships. Again, only traveling as quickly as the slowest ship. The U-boats, on the other hand, which were attacking them in the mid-Atlantic, uh, and generally waters that were not given uh, any cover by Air Force, because by the time the U-boats got to the middle of the Atlantic, the uh, air cover had long disappeared, at least at the beginning of the war. And we are talking about the first year of the war, 1940. So the U-boats on the surface could travel 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 knots, which means they were maneuverable, they were fast, and Carl Dunitz, who is the admiral of the U-boat Waffe, instructs all of his U-boats to essentially attack in packs using this maneuverability and using the availability of nighttime, in other words, disguising their attacks. So when SC-7 leaves, it's got 35 tankers and freighters bound for the UK, supplying war munitions to Britain ultimately keeping Britain alive, which was the essence of the of the Atlantic convoys. And it's attacked with very little escort support. The escorts were the warships, which would, in effect, protect the convoy in the, in the transatlantic crossing. In this case, SC-7 had very poor escort capability, only two sloops and a corvette. They had four-inch guns, some depth charges, very little radio linkage, and very little visual contract, least of all at night. And so four days out, the convoy runs into a gale, which complicates things even further, because then the escorts have to wrangle all of the ships back together again. And then by the time they're back together again, the U-boats attack. And in the next three days and three nights, the Wolfpack sinks 17 of the 35 merchant ships, killing most of the men on board and sinking hundreds of thousands of tons of freight. That was the disaster that was SC-7, and it was typical of the first three years of the war. 
Well, you you just made the point, Ted, and I'll I'll make it again. I mean, reading your book, it was very clear that uh, the Atlantic lifeline to Britain was absolutely crucial. I mean, everything had to be imported from food to fuel to steel to munitions. And in your book, Winston Churchill was quoted as saying that the only thing that ever really frightened him was what he called the U-boat peril. And now, how bad did things actually get? I mean, it seemed like it was pretty dire for the Allies, especially in the early years of the war. Well, it went from bad to worse, Larry, because uh, typical SC-7 got worse with the with the convoys because now the U-boats know where they are. They know how quickly they travel or how slowly. Um, and in the calendar year 1940, the U-boats sank 349 merchant ships or 2 million tons of Allied shipping on the North Atlantic. The next year, it got worse. 496 ships, 2.5 million tons. 1942 was the worst year of the war. 1,006 ships in the transatlantic crossings, three point, sorry, and 1,006 ships, 5.5 million tons. And in effect, they were sinking uh, almost half of whatever the Allies were sending across the North Atlantic. And this was what was known in the U boat Waffe, that is the Kriegsmarine, the, the German Navy U boat service, as the happy time because almost all of their encounters were victorious. Well, it certainly was a horrible time to be at sea if you were on a transatlantic convoy. And and I'd like to specifically ask you about one part of the route. Uh, there was a place in the middle of the Atlantic that sailors referred to as the Black Pit. It, what was it exactly? Well, this is a reference to the air part, the air war part of the Atlantic crossings. If you can imagine in your mind, on your left-hand side is North America. And so you have Air Force bases. Uh, later, when the Americans enter the war, there would be uh, U.S. Army Air Force bases. Uh, some were located in, in Newfoundland with the Lend-Lease arrangement that came about in 1941. But mostly you have Royal Canadian Air Force bases in, in Newfoundland and, and the Maritimes. Then you have Iceland at the top of your picture. And then to the far right-hand side, to the east, you've got the United Kingdom, what were known as the Western Approaches. So air crew could be launched from North America, Iceland, and the UK to protect the convoys. Bear in mind, most of the aircraft early in the war were twin-engine, which meant that they could only travel so far and say stay so long over the convoy before they had to get back to land or else drop into the, into the drink without uh, any fuel left. So the area that they were not able to cover and which the ships ultimately had to cross were about a thousand kilometers of open space where the U-boats ran rampant over top of the the the, the convoys um, and 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 this rudel tactic, which is this tactic that that Donitz uses to make sure all of the uh, U-boats are gathering in large numbers at, at the height of the of the battle in 1942 and and uh, in that horrible year, you could face as a merchant sailor on your ship. At night, as many as 30 or 40 U-boats, and you couldn't see a damn thing. So this black pit had to be conquered, and the only way to conquer it ultimately was to be able to extend your air coverage from North America, Iceland, and the United Kingdom to extend that reach across the black pit and give the U-boats some conflict, some, some, some challenge. And, and the, what the Air Force did ultimately was it would drive the U-boats down. So if the Air Forces were able to spot the U-boats and attack them, the only defense the U-boat had would be to submerge because at, at certain depths it would be safe. 
So if you could drive the U-boats down, their speed would diminish because they're pushing more water submerged. So they would go from 10 or 12 or 15 knots to maybe even less than eight or nine and would lose contact with the convoy. So the ultimate objective of the Air Force was to drive the U-boats down and have them lose contact with the convoys and ultimately give them safer passage across the Atlantic. Not until 1943-44 when the, um, uh, the Lockheed Liberator, which was a four-engine bomber, was issued and or constructed and delivered to the Air Forces, the, the American, the British, and the Canadian, was that black pit able to be shrunk by virtue of the longer range. They were known as VLR liberators, very long-range liberators, to give the convoys the, the cover they needed in the middle of the Atlantic. So uh, one of the other dimensions to the Battle of the Atlantic was the development of escort vessels, as I understand it, in the Royal Canadian Navy. And one of the types of vessel that was developed were known as corvettes. You highlight the crucial role that they played in escorting shipping. And I should mention at this point, I'm going to put in a little bit of a plug here, that if you find yourself in Halifax, you can actually visit Canada's last remaining Corvette from the Second World War, the HMCS Sackville. So Ted, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what life was like on board these escorting Corvettes for the crews that were on board in what were pretty cramped quarters, and also in the context of what could be absolutely violent North Atlantic gales. You have to imagine that we, as a, as a maritime nation, we had to come up with the kind of escort that, one, we could afford, two, we could build, three, we could launch quickly, and four, we could man with capable sailors able to work under those conditions and to deliver the response to the U-boats that was necessary. The Corvette was an invention, actually goes back to 17th century France. They had uh, the, the French navigators uh, built these uh, ships, which were whalers, and they were short, compact, speedy. And in those days, they were sail vessels. But by the 19th and 20th century, we're talking about a vessel that could, if it, if need be in peacetime, uh, use uh, be used for whalers. But Ultimately, it had the capability with its steam engines to travel quickly, to maneuver quickly, sometimes inside circle within the same circle that a U-boat might be traveling. In other words, beat them in, the, in a circuit uh, and also to deliver some sort of punch. The, all of the Corvettes were built with one four-inch gun towards the bow. Um, not the most effective, but it would drive the U-boats down. And their most effective weapon were the depth charges, which they would launch off the sides of the ship or drop off the stern rail. Now, these depth charges were hydrostatically set so that they would drop to a certain depth, and then the water pressure would, would depending on the hydrostatic setting, set off the explosive to concuss the U-boats beneath. But because these ships were built so quickly and so compactly, they only had about 1,600 square feet of living space. So I want you and, and your listeners to imagine living in a bungalow that's about 1,600 square feet, you know, a certain number of bedrooms and kitchens and living rooms and all that sort of thing. And now imagine um, that that's the space in which 85 to 100 men would be living for two to three weeks without showers <laughs> and fighting a war to boot. As you suggest, they were buoyant. They were like corks. In my book, I have a chapter called Brotherhood to a Cork, and it describes the lives of these 85 to 100 sailors, mostly Canadians and British sailors on corvettes, attempting to survive the, the violent um, 
back and forth motion of these of Corvettes on the open sea, and yet their capability moving quickly and rapidly to the U-boats and delivering this punch. Uh, somebody once said that a Corvette could roll on wet grass. And that really describes the vulnerability of the Corvette to the reality of the ocean. But as Churchill described them, they were the cheap and nasties. They were built for $530,000 each, and they were nasty because they could inside circle the U-boats, drive them down, and very often destroy them with their depth charges. So they were quite the answer to our escort problems during the Battle of the Atlantic. Well, and I guess further to the point you just made, I mean, if, if they're cheap and then can be mass produced easily, uh, they were what was required in such a critical situation at that time. Yes, we built between 1939 when C.D. Howe, who was the Minister of Supply and Services during the war, he was also known as the Minister of Everything. Um, we built uh, 355 flower class Corvettes. They were all named after flowers in the first couple of years. And then we built Corvettes named after cities and towns. And C.D. Howe went across the country and got cities and towns to donate money toward the building of the Corvettes. And in so doing, we found Corvettes that were named after places like Camrose and uh, Collingwood and uh, Chambly, uh, all because citizens had donated money to help fight the war with the cash they had in hand. Hmm. As I mentioned when I asked you the question, of course, HMCS Sackville in Halifax Harbor was another one of that series of, uh, of Corvettes. But um, I wanted to come back. We, we were earlier talking about uh, SC or Slow Convoy, no Convoy Number 7. And wow, when you read the book, it really becomes apparent how terrible a price the mariners of the Merchant Marine paid during the war. And in your book, you mentioned that one in eight merchant mariners became casualties. And it's really hard to overstate their contribution to the war effort, isn't it? It is. It is. Um, and, and I went to great lengths to make sure that the story of merchant sailors is prominent, um, is detailed, is vivid, is human, and, and, and really does begin to state the reality of their lives. These were men who volunteered to join what were essentially private firms which owned the shipping, the ships and the shipping companies. And so in many ways, that's why they were in, a, in effect outside the military. They were civilians hired by the companies to be radio operators. And uh, and sometimes case, some cases when the merchant carriers were armed, there'd be gunners on board, but they would be stevedores and, you know, cooks and, and all the rest of the crew required to deliver the goods across the Atlantic. But there were, during the Second World War, there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 12,000 Canadian merchant seamen. And one of them who was typical was a man whose story I got from his son, uh, Rob Ray, um, was a, uh, at the beginning of the war, um, wanted to become a fighter pilot. And at 18, he goes to down to Bay Street in Toronto and asks to sign up to, to win the war in, in a Spitfire. <laughs> but of course, he doesn't have the educational capability. And as Steve, Rob's son, pointed out to me, um, I got the records of Rob's next step and ultimately having given up on the notion of becoming a fighter pilot, uh, becoming another Buzz Beerling, he goes into uh, Montreal and signs up to learn how to learn, operate radios and become a merchant sailor. And he's on the North Atlantic run for three years, as well as other runs, as a radio operator. Uh, he had to get permission in order to leave the job he was in. He was uh, actually helping to build nitroglycerin um, explosives in Nobel, Ontario, but because it was considered an essential service, he had to get permission to leave that to become a merchant sailor. He does all of this simply to join a service he, he sensed was valuable and important. 
So as a radio operator, among the things he has to learn is that he is the last man to leave the ship, the merchant ship, if she's torpedoed. And that's because the British Admiralty Merchant Shipping Instructions require that the radio operator has to take all of the, if the ship is torpedoed and sinking, he has to take all of the secret codes and the secret documents on board that merchant ship that might reveal uh, convoy details, uh, transit Atlantic uh, passage of the merchant sailors and the ships to the Germans should they fall into the wrong hands. He has to take all these documents and put them in a what is essentially a steel box with holes in it. And as the ship is going down, he takes all these documents, all the BAMSI documents, puts them in the box and throws it overboard so that it'll sink, taking all the valuable documents to the bottom. Then in his radio shack, he taps off an SOS declaring that the ship is in distress and where they are, their coordinates, in hopes they might be able to be picked up, the survivors. And only then can he leave the ship, get on board a lifeboat, if it's still available, to save himself. For three years, he lives with that horrible reality in his in the back of his mind, survives the war, comes home, and applies at the end of the war for extended training in his radio telegraphy. He's turned down by the government because he's not considered a veteran in the government's strictest uh, terms. He being a civilian joining the military, turning he being a civilian joining the merchant sailors uh, navy, and with that, Rob Ray, Steve told me, threw his medals in a drawer to be forgotten because he was so angry with his government, with uh, the military, and with the lot that his country had given him. And then later on, in the 1980s, he takes up the cause so many of the merchant sailors did to get their veteran status, which comes 49 years after the end of the war in 1994. And after that long battle through which many of the merchant sailors die of old age, Rob successfully with his comrades manages to get veteran status for merchant sailors in Canada. And he, on November the 11th, 1994, becomes the first merchant sailor to lay a wreath at the National Memorial on the very first day that Merchant sailors are considered veterans in 1994, all those years later. That, that's just absolutely incredible, Ted. And it just shows that many years after the war ended, he continued to serve his comrades who had been part of the Merchant Marine. That's just amazing. You quote in the book, historian Richard Holmes is saying that you win at sea first and having secured the sea, you may then hope to win on land. Basically, you know, in other words, what he's saying is you need to win the Battle of the Atlantic because it's a stepping stone to the Normandy landings and the eventual invasion of Europe in June 1944. Uh, is that a fair assessment in your view? It is, uh, both in terms of the logic of how much of a hinge the Battle of the Atlantic was and, and your understanding of the overall war. I mean, it, the Battle of the Atlantic lasted 2,074 days literally from September the 3rd, 1939, when the British declare war on the Germans after the sinking of the SS Athenia off Ireland, right through until just before VE Day, May the 8th, 1945, when Karl Dönitz, taking over from Hitler, who's committed suicide, tells the U-boats to surrender. What you have in this period is Britain struggling to survive, and that the Battle of the Atlantic is first to secure those lifelines between North America and Britain to keep 40 million civilians and the Army and Navy and the Air Force in Britain alive so that ultimately you can launch um, an invasion from Britain into France in 1944. But there was actually a plan for how this would operate. There was an operation known as Operation Bolero, 
and it was to prepare Britain for a cross-channel invasion, presumably in 1943 or 44. And this operation would require the delivery of as many as a million U.S. ground troops, a quarter of a million Air Force troops, 3,600 aircraft, and all the supplies to keep them alive to get ready for the invasion during that period from 1940 to 1944. Now, that evolved over time because ultimately before the invasion in northwest France was the invasion of North Africa. Operation Torch, which is delivered from Britain to North Africa, the first step in driving the Germans out of uh, the Mediterranean, was the first test of that buildup of supplies. So Operation Torch is the first attempt to find out whether keeping Britain alive, afloat, if you will, will work. And indeed, Torch works because in uh, 1942-43, we land 100,000 troops with 350 warships, 500 transports, five squadrons of Air Force fighters into North Africa, proving that that buildup ultimately is going to pay off. And the next step after Operation Torch is Operation Overlord, delivering D-Day into France. And so basically, I mean, it's very clear, you don't have control of the sea lanes. You, you don't do any of that. So let me uh, let me now turn to a gentleman that you mentioned earlier, Clarence Decatur Howe, a fascinating figure, also known as C.D. Howe, whose formal title was Minister of Munitions and Supply, who was uh, only half-jokingly, I guess, referred to as the Minister of Everything. And he really oversaw a staggering Canadian shipbuilding effort during the war. And you referenced a little bit of it earlier, but I'm going to quote a few statistics to you that come out of your book. So by the time the conflict ended, by the end of the Second World War, the Royal Canadian Navy had gone from a handful of ships to being the fourth largest navy in the world. And in terms of shipbuilding, the industry went from 4,000 to 126,000 workers. And we went from constructing 38 merchant ships a year to 410 ships a year in shipyards right across the country. How did C.D. Howe do it? He was an amazing character. I, I wish that um, I had paid attention to him earlier in my research and uh, story gathering and, and history writing days. I, I would probably have learned more from the people who worked around him. But from what I've gathered from reading biographies and doing other research, he, he actually came from Massachusetts. He was an American-born um, uh, engineer, uh, got through MIT in Massachusetts, uh, accepts a professorship in Halifax at Dalhousie University, uh, suddenly discovers that uh, he likes living in Canada, becomes a Canadian citizen, or actually a British subject, and joins the federal civil service with what was known as the Board of Grain Commissioners in Fort William, which was the predecessor to Thunder Bay, Fort William, Port Arthur. Anyway, he launches a huge business, ultimately, of grain elevator construction, which struggles through the 30s, but proves his business worth. And suddenly, the politics of the day draw... C.D. Howe and the two major political parties, the Conservatives and the Liberals, to him. And they both kind of danced around him to get him to, to join them. And he said, I only join a party that will give me a portfolio if I'm elected. <laughs> so he plays both ends against the middle and he gets the Liberals to consent to that. He gets elected in 1935 and he then takes over the evolution of the Ministry of Transportation, and then ultimately begins to build what you were starting to describe a minute ago, all those, um, uh, those sort of financial channels and the flow of people to shipyards to begin to build the Corvettes that I was alluding to earlier. We built 
uh, 355 flower class corvettes in the first couple of years of the war in uh, shipbuilding yards around the Great Lakes and places like Midland and Collingwood and Owen Sound and Kingston and Toronto, throughout New Brunswick and up the St. Lawrence into Quebec. All these places were grinding out two and three corvettes a month at C.D. Howe's insistence. But what was really interesting was the amount of money we put into this. I mean, these budgets were astronomical, $52 million, which was spent on the construction of these um, Great Lakes and um, New Brunswick uh, and B.C. shipbuilding yards uh, in the construction of Corvettes. And later on, the shipyards that built many of the freighters and tankers for the merchant navy. And what's really interesting, too, is this was one of the first moments when women moved into the workforce in large numbers. You can imagine with most of the men in Canada signing up, most eligible men signing up to join the armed forces or to become merchant mariners, um, many of the jobs in the shipyards were left vacant. And so women filled them quite readily. And it was a real struggle for men to understand how to handle that, which was kind of silly, but because women were certainly as capable as anybody. But once that struggle was over, women by the thousands moved into the shipyards and really in many ways proved their worth gaining um, salaries back in a day when they were not particularly equitable, they were getting paid for work of equal value in 1942-43. And that's a remarkable moment in women's uh, liberation and history in this country. Well, and a massive contribution to the ultimate victory, I mean, without any doubt. But while this shipbuilding surge is going on at home and we're building merchant ships and mobilizing a workforce and building corvettes and so on, the Germans are also trying to win the Battle of the Atlantic and to stop those convoys from getting through. And many listeners might not be aware that German U-boats made their way into Canadian waters, into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and even down the St. Lawrence River. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened there? This is a fascinating story, and it's one I didn't know until I started to probe this, this larger story of the Battle of the Atlantic. We think of the Battle of the Atlantic as happening out on the Atlantic. Well, yeah. But in 1942, the politics of the day were such that the Canadian government had a number of areas to shore up of uh, weaknesses in in terms of its uh, of its uh, connection with Canadian citizens, particularly in the East Coast and particularly in Quebec. And so, to placate Quebecers, to help Quebecers and Eastern Canadians understand that we had strength along the Eastern Seaboard, a new fort was opening on the Gas Bay. Now, the Gas Bay is that bulge of Quebec uh, territory that bulges out into the south shore of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. So Gas Bay becomes the home of a new fort called Fort Ramsey. And the government sends the media there to cover the opening of this fort. A couple of reporters whose stories I researched uh, in this capacity, a guy named Jack Braley, who was Canadian press from Montreal, goes to Fort Ramsey to cover it, as does a young reporter with Radio-Canada, René Levesque, later the premier of Quebec. He goes to Gaspé. And a, a photographer from Toronto with the Royal Canadian Navy, a guy named Ian Tate. Now, these three men consider they've just been sent to the ends of the earth. Where in the heck is Gaspé and why are they being sent there? The war isn't going to happen anywhere near where they are. But remarkably, nine days after the opening of Fort Ramsey on the 1st of May, 1942, guess what happens? A U-boat. Um, U-boat 553 penetrates the Cabot, Cabot Strait and moves right into the open St. Lawrence and finds ships unescorted, sinks two of them, and sh sailors begin washing ashore in Gaspé. And these three guys, 
Jack Ramsey, Rene Levesque, and Ian Tate begin to document exactly the opposite of what the Canadian government wants them to tell. The story of strength, uh uh-uh, the strength is gone, it's vulnerability. Suddenly, U-boats have penetrated the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and over the next six months, they create havoc on the St. Lawrence sinking, they create havoc on the St. Lawrence sinking 16 merchant ships in six months, uh, three U.S. Navy ships, and two Royal Canadian Navy ships. But the worst of all was a civilian loss. In October of 1942, a ferry, which three times a week is crossing between Cape Breton and Newfoundland from Sydney to Port of Basque, delivering civilian passengers, is sunk in the middle of the night on the 14th of October by a single torpedo. And the torpedo strikes amidships, and the boiler explodes, and the ferry goes down in four minutes. And almost a third to a half of those on board, 137 of the 200 or so passengers on board, die in the sinking of the ferry. And in spite of the fact that she had an escort, the HMCS Grand Mare, a minesweeper, but because of the nature of warfare, a military vessel, even including a minesweeper, has an obligation in combat not to deliver uh, freedom or safety for the shipwrecked passengers, but to chase the offender, to go after the U-boat. Grand Mare goes after the U-boat, returns to find those who have survived the sinking of the ferry, the SS Caribou, you know, wallowing around the water in freezing temperatures, and 137 are dead or dying. It was one of the worst disasters of the war, but brings the war, as you point out, Larry, right to our doorstep, right into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and as far up the St. Lawrence as Ramouski sightings of U-boats were had. Well, Ted, on that note, I wonder, given all of the research you've done and the wonderful book that you've produced, I wonder, to wrap things up, whether if there's one story in particular from a survivor of the Battle of the Atlantic that you'd like to share with our listeners. Well, there's so many wonderful Canadian personalities whose stories I try to share in this book. But there's one fascinating man. I swear to goodness, if he had been an American, John Wayne would have starred in an American Hollywood movie about him. He was just that dynamic. My research comes across a guy who had actually served. He comes from British Columbia. He served in the Royal Navy during the First World War, that is the British Navy, and survived the Battle of Jutland. He comes back to BC, uh, having acquired a number of interesting Royal Navy traits. He's wearing a monocle, for example, on his right eye, and he smokes a big pipe. He goes back to BC between the wars to take care of his horses and his cattle on his ranch. He becomes known as the monocled cowboy. You can just picture this guy. Has a great uh, demeanor about him and a, and a great personality. He was His nickname was Chummy Prentice. His name was James Douglas chummy Prentice. But Prentice was, in addition to being a real character, he was also a a brilliant tactician. Very early in the war, the admiral of the Royal Canadian Navy, um, Leonard Murray, realizes the skill that chummy Prentice can bring to the fighting that's going on uh, in the North Atlantic. And he gives him the job. He gives Prentice the job of training the Corvette crews. And initially that happens off the south coast of Nova Scotia in the sleepy waters off Halifax. But because Prentice had a very different attitude about what the Corvettes should be doing with the convoys, in other words, not just defending them, reacting to the attacks of the of the U-boats, but more being proactive and offensive thinking, going after the U-boats, less like sheepdogs and more like sub-killers, Murray moves him, Admiral Murray moves 
apprentice to St. John's, which is 500 miles closer to the battles in the North Atlantic, to train these Corvette crews off St. John's so that ultimately they're a day or a day and a half from the battle. And that means that the kinds of tactics that this man instills in his crews repeatedly, day in and day out, off the coast of Newfoundland, can be called into play. And ultimately, um, in September of 1941, Slow Convoy 42 is moving eastward and calls distress signals that they're being attacked. They're facing overwhelming wolf pack numbers. And the Corvettes leave St. John's because they're just a day away. And under his command, under Prentice's command, HMCS Chambly and her sister ship, HMCS Moose Jaw, race to the aid of SC-42 and sink U-501 using Prentice's tactics, become the first Corvettes in tandem to sink a, uh, to sink a U-boat at sea during the battle. And this guy deserves so much more attention than anybody's ever given him. He was brilliant. He was personable and, and so memorable as a, as a man, a Canadian who stood out for his intelligence, his tact, and his personality. Where are these people in our history is all I have to say. They deserve more attention than maybe a few Hollywood movies. Based on that, Ted, uh, you're absolutely right. An unsung hero of what was a hugely important uh, and decisive battle of the Atlantic. And Ted, I'd like to thank you very much for joining me today. It's greatly appreciated. Thanks for inviting me. My guest today was Ted Barris. His book, Battle of the Atlantic, Gauntlet to Victory, was published by HarperCollins in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. You can also send us an email at info at champlainsociety.ca. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Larry Ostola. This interview was recorded on March 7th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press journal team, who also support the Champlain Society. Mm -hmm.